This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 18th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we hear about the first observation of a self-lensing binary star system. And Nadia Whitehead is here to give us a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. The Kepler mission's primary objective is to find planets. But sometimes, other types of precious materials come to light when panning for gold. This week, Ethan Kruse and colleagues report the observation of a self-lensing binary star system. I spoke with him about why gravitational lensing is a rare sight in such systems and what we might learn from these special pairs of stars. We published the first detection of a, what's known as a self-lensing binary star system. And this is interesting because half the stars in the sky are binary stars. They are actually two stars orbiting each other. And if they're aligned just right, when one star passes in front of the other star, it will block some of the light. And so the system will appear to get dimmer here on Earth. In this particular case, when one star passed in front of another star, instead of getting dimmer, the system got brighter instead. So that was the big discovery in this system, is that there's this gravitational lensing effect that is causing the system to get brighter during an eclipse. So what exactly is gravitational lensing? Why would it make one star passing in front of the other cause a brightening? Everyone knows that gravity attracts things with mass. So the sun attracts the Earth that keeps it in orbit. We stay on the Earth because of the gravity. But an open question for a long time in the history of science was, what about light that doesn't have mass? Does light feel gravity too? And Einstein, actually, was the one who predicted with his theory of relativity that light, even though it doesn't have mass, should be bent by gravity as well. If you use general relativity, you can show that light gets bent by gravity in pretty much the same way that light gets bent through a magnifying glass. It's like this magnifying lens. And so if you have enough gravity, a very compact very massive object that has a strong gravitational field, it can actually bend light around itself. And so this effect can actually cause things behind the star to appear brighter. And so that's what we have in this case, where 
you have a very compact, strong gravitational star that bends the light from the other star that's orbiting it around it and makes the system appear brighter instead of dimmer. Very cool. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about these are two objects that emit light. So, you know, why wouldn't it be additive? Why is it dimming when one is behind the other? But I guess it makes sense that it's still a physical object that's blocking the other one. Right. Normally, you have two objects that emit light and in normal circumstances don't block each other's light. So you see the sum of the two bodies emitting their light. But when one passes in front of the other, you essentially have a shadow, just like when something passes in front of the sun, you see a shadow here on Earth. Mm -hmm. And so it gets temporarily dimmer when one object passes in front of the other. But in this case, because the gravitational lensing, the magnification is stronger than that shadow effect, you actually see the system get brighter. Right. So this idea of a self-lensing binary star system has been around for a while. What has, why has it taken so long to actually observe one? Well, to be clear, gravitational lensing has been seen in other types of systems. I don't know if that has been emphasized, but galaxies and other stars that are not connected to themselves have been seen to gravitationally lens other objects. But this is the first time where two objects orbiting each other are gravitationally lensing one another. And the reason it took so long for this type of system to be found is that the effect, the magnification is relatively small. It's only about 0.1%. And in order to see that, you need a telescope that's able to detect changes in brightness of only 0.1% over very long time scales, because these two stars orbit each other every 88 days. And so to see this, you would have to measure that 0.1% change in brightness every 88 days. And it's taken until now with spacecraft like the Kepler telescope that have been able to monitor stars at that accuracy for that long a period of time. Does it also have something to do with the rarity, like the position of this pair with respect to our solar system? Yeah, exactly. You need these two stars to be aligned just right relative to the Earth. Their orbit has to be aligned perfectly so that one star will pass directly in front of the other. And so even though a lot of stars are in binary star systems, most of the time their alignment isn't quite perfect. And so you would never see this lensing effect. Right. So we might see them in a circle, circling around a, po- a point. Exactly. That we can't see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This pair of stars was actually first flagged as a candidate exoplanet. You know, what makes it look different than other objects, and, and how do they know right away that it wasn't a planet? Yeah, this star system, this binary system, has been flagged as a Kepler object of interest, which means it's a planetary candidate. Mm-hmm. And what's going on is, in this system, when the compact object goes behind the normal star, the, the system gets a little bit dimmer. You're losing a little bit of the light, and the lensing effect isn't relevant at that point. And so this little bit of dimming when you lose the light from one of the stars as it goes behind the other looks a lot like a planetary transit. It looks a lot like a planet passing in front of a star and blocking a little bit of light. Mm -hmm. And the Kepler team and the Kepler pipeline saw this dimming of light and labeled it as it looks so similar to a planetary candidate that it's been labeled that way since it was found. But what we found actually by accident, is that you also see this brightening half an orbit later, where the star gets brighter. And you would never see that with a planetary body. Right. You would never see that with a planetary body. And I was looking for other planets in the system, 
And instead of seeing a normal planet transit where you get a little bit dimmer every now and then, instead I saw pretty much the exact same signal. It looks exactly like a planetary transit just upside down, which <laughs> means that the star was getting brighter instead of dimmer, which was immediately a sign that something very strange was going on. How many times did you actually make this observation? Seeing as they're circling each other every 88 days, did you have to make an observation, wait half that time, make an observation? Like, is that, is that kind of the process? So the way we were able to make this discovery is the joy of the Kepler telescope, really, <laughs> is that it stared at the same stars for four years in a row continuously. And so you have a constant measure of the light coming out of this pair of stars which means that we were able to watch as there were 16 times when the white dwarf passed in front and caused this gravitational lensing over the four years of the Kepler mission. And there were also 16 times when the white dwarf disappeared behind the sun-like star. And we were able to watch all of those happen. And by seeing the repeating event, we were able to convince ourselves that our model was right. Okay. Is there anything about this arrangement that allowed you to make unique measurements? The system is composed of these two stars. One is a normal star, almost identical to our sun. It's got the same, roughly the same mass, the same temperature, the same radius as our sun. The other star is actually what's called a white dwarf. It's a dead star. It's the leftover core of a star that has used up all its nuclear fuel and died. So because you see this gravitational lensing effect, you can actually measure the mass of the white dwarf, which is not always true. And we were able to figure out that this particular one has a mass of about 60% of the mass of our sun, but it's so small, it's only about the size of the Earth. Mm. And that's why its gravity is so strong, is you have something the size of the Earth that has the mass of 60% of our sun. How about follow-up observations? Is there more to learn from these stars? Of course. So right now we only have estimates of the radius and temperature of the white dwarf. It's about the size of the Earth and it's very hot, but we don't have a direct measurement of it yet because we need other observations to do that. So if you were to follow this up with, for instance, the Hubble Space Telescope would be a great instrument that would give us a different measurement of these lensing events and the dimming as the white dwarf disappears. And putting those together can let us actually directly measure the radius of the white dwarf and its temperature. And if you have the mass and the radius of a white dwarf, like this system should allow us to get that's a relatively rare measurement to make. And these measurements of masses and radii of white dwarfs can help us understand particle physics and how matter behaves in very compact, very dense environments, which is hard to reproduce here on Earth. Great. Ethan Cruzy, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Ethan Cruzy and colleagues write about a mismatched pair of stars in this week's issue. You can read their article and read about another major find from Kepler this week an Earth-sized exoplanet in the habitable region of a distant star at www.sciencemag.org. Finally today, Nadia Whitehead, intern for our daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the power of P, getting things up into space. P 
people, fuel, water is incredibly expensive, both in terms of energy and financial cost. And humans, being mainly water, tend to have pretty heavy water demands. Now, researchers are looking into a way to stretch the space water supply a bit further by looking into urine recycling. Okay, Nadia, I thought that astronauts were already imbibing recycled urine, aren't they? So you're right. Astronauts on board the International Space Station are currently recycling their urine to recover pure water. But right now, they're only recycling or recovering about 75% of the water in urine. NASA astronauts are hoping to recover 85% by next year, though. While the reclamation process is happening, the question before us today is, can it be more efficient? What new tactics are uh, the researchers in this study trying? So apparently the recycling system can be more efficient. Right now, the space station is disposing of urea, one of the main compounds in urine. But urea can be used to generate power. Researchers have created a new technique that can filter out urea from urine, and they pass it through a device called a bioreactor. The device uses an enzyme that breaks down urea to convert 86% of the urea into ammonia. So they're not just getting the water out, they're actually trying to get some energy out of this? Right. So in addition to getting water, they're also trying to get power from our urine. Okay. So this seems kind of Rube Goldbergian, you know, and uh, taking water, purifying it, taking some of the salts and using those for power. How likely is this actually to become part of a space mission? There are some doubts about how likely this is actually going to become part of a NASA space mission because there's very little electric power being generated, about 0.2 volts. Of course, they hope to improve this output of power over time, but some scientists say that urea is only a small amount of our urine, so is it going to be worth it in the long run? We don't know. Next up, we have a story on love and glucose. This study brings up one of my favorite new words, hangry, a mixture of hungry and angry. You may recognize the feeling, you're hungry and suddenly you can't agree with anyone else about where to eat. And now there may be some science to back up this gut feeling. Okay, so before this study, Nadia, what do we know about the relationship between eating and agreeableness? Well, I already knew that I get angry when I don't eat. <laughs> but since the 1960s, scientists have suspected that low glucose levels may play a role in aggression. There have been two studies done in 2010 that measured vengefulness in people with type 2 diabetes and how giving sweetened drinks to strangers competing at computer tasks can actually make people more agreeable. So the higher someone's glucose levels are, the less likely they are to treat people aggressively. Okay, so sugar may be a solution here. What's new in this study? In this case, scientists wanted to check out how glucose levels affect couples, uh, particularly married couples. So they recruited 100 married couples and gave them blood glucose meters to measure their glucose. And they also gave them some interesting supplies voodoo dolls with 51 pins to measure how angry they were at the end of the day. So basically, the couples would measure their glucose levels in the morning and at nighttime. And at nighttime, they would also put pins into their voodoo dolls to measure exactly how angry they were at their spouse. 
So these are some unusual measures. Was there actually a correlation between pins in doll and glucose in blood? <laughs> yeah, they did find a correlation. Spouses with lower evening glucose levels showed a lot more anger and aggression and put in more pins than those who had higher glucose levels. And what about this application of torturous noise that I saw in the study? So they also had the couples come into their lab where they gave them the chance to blast their spouse with some ugly noises like ambulance sirens, dentist drills, and fingernails scratching a chalkboard. We don't have a sample of that, do we? Uh, no. <laughs> so they found out that the same thing happened. If you have low glucose levels, you're more likely to blast louder and longer ugly noises at your spouse. Okay. So this seems like an open and shut case. Hanger is a real thing. Do all the experts agree? Right. It seems as though there's a connection between glucose and self-control, but not everyone agrees. For instance, some experts think this could just be one of the many factors that makes us more prone to be aggressive. For instance, alcohol can also make us more aggressive. The scientists in this case didn't measure if they were drinking alcohol or not at night. So scientists are suggesting more research needs to be done. Finally, we have a story on the potential extinction of beards. Facial hair fashion, from eyebrow plucking to shapely beards, changes with the times. But what about humanity's opinion about facial hair? Is that as fickle as fashion? A new study has looked into this question from an evolutionary perspective. So, Nadia, can you give us some background on the principles at play here? Sure. So there's a theory out there that says sometimes it may be bad to have a trait that's too popular. Here's an example. Guppies with rare colors are more likely to go unnoticed by predators because they don't stand out as much. However, as predators start to devour the fish with common colors, the rare-colored guppies thrive and pass on their colors and spread in the population. Once the rare color gets too common, the advantage disappears, and predators will start to chow down on them. Okay, so that's an example of how being a rarity might be advantageous. But these are genes that we're talking about. How could this apply to hairy faces? Yeah, so it's a little more complicated when it comes to beards. A fish's color is all about the genes it inherits, while a beard is more of an option. You either shave or you don't shave. But the same logic can be applied if the behavior influences the choice of potential mates. And it does. Someone can like beards or someone can't stand them. So in this study, researchers asked if a beard is still sexy if everyone has one. <laughs> <laughs> so for the investigation, did the researchers just randomly apply beards to different people? <laughs> no. So they actually recruited men to grow them. Over time, they took images of the men during different periods of growth. They took images when they were clean-shaven, when there was a light stubble, heavy stubble, and then a full-out beard. They then showed the images to men and women in sets and asked them to rate how attractive they were. But there was a catch. The frequency of beardness in each set of photos varied. While some sets had pictures of men that were mostly clean-shaven, others saw sets that were mostly of men with beards. So they were controlling rarity in these samples. Sometimes someone would see a bunch of clean-shaven people and then maybe one bearded fellow. What was the result? Is a rare beard more beautiful? Yep, it sure is. It looks like when facial hair is rare, it's about 20% more attractive. But the same thing happens for clean-shaven folks. When practically everyone has a beard, clean-shaven faces are rated more attractive. Okay, so is the takeaway here to grow a bigger, better beard, perhaps one of those fancy birdcage beards? I'm not sure that's a safe bet. 
but the study does show that originality is important, even when it comes to beards. So you've got to figure out the best way to stand out in your particular crowd. Beard or no beard. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Nadia? So this week we also have a story about how scientists may have observed a marmoset mourning the death of its partner. And there's also a new finding that suggests a particular gene is why women are more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. In Insider, one of our latest stories is about how a T-Rex from Montana was just FedExed to Washington, D.C. to be put on display at the Smithsonian. So be sure to check out all these stories and more on the science website. Thanks, Nadia. Thanks, Sarah. Nadia Whitehead is the intern for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Hey, podcast listeners. Thanks for listening, especially all the way to the very end here. As you may have noticed, we have been producing a shorter show since the beginning of 2014. Don't worry, the podcast is not going away, but we would like to hear from you now because we're looking for ways to improve the show. So email us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. I read all the emails. Or tweet to us at Science Magazine. I read all those too. Let us know if you want more content from science, more from the daily news site, the topics you like, how you find the podcast. You get the picture. We'd really like to hear from you. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. And that concludes the April 18th, 2014 edition of the Science Podcast. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.